This is Josh Heald, and you're listening to Cobra Kai Time Machine, a very special episode of Cobra Kai Companion. Welcome to another episode of Cobra Kai Companion, and I am Peter. And I'm Tom. Hey, hey, Tom is back. Yeah, Yes, I am. A uh, little under the weather, uh, change of the season type crud. Uh, I don't know if everyone who listens to this uh, experiences this, but uh, it's like I said to uh, tonight's guest, I'm kind of tired of having to uh, go through winter and spring twice in one week. Right, absolutely. You, you yeah. know, um, I I was just thinking about it as well. Like, I I, I feel like we might be recording out of order, but uh, <laughs> I I would like to try to get this out right before season two drops. Yeah, yeah, you know? I think that's a genius idea, actually. So perhaps the uh, the listeners might have heard another episode prior to this. So you know, I, the reason I bring it up is because I said Tom is back, but I feel like you might have been back on the previous episode already. Oh, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> You're like, where, where, where are you going with this, Peter? All right, all right. So do you want to start that over again? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I, I, just, I was just doing a little inside baseball is all. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yes, we are back and we have a very special interview. Obviously, you know, you guys downloaded this episode, so you know who's on it. But one of the big three returned, right? We got yeah. Josh Heald, writer of Hot Tip Time Machine. And, uh, you know, also one of the creators of Cobra Kai, and he directed uh, two of the episodes uh, from season one. Uh, yeah, uh, Hot Tub Time Machine is, I mean, I'm hoping that when we interview him, I didn't come off as too fanboyish, because it's one of the best comedies, I think, in the last at least 15, 20 years. And so to get to talk to one of the writers about one of my favorite comedies was really exciting. Uh, and uh, I couldn't pass the opportunity up. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I I really don't remember what it was when I watched it when it first came out that I just, you know, I it, I, I didn't remember revisiting it. Didn't strike it. home with you? Yeah, I you know, like I don't remember disliking it or anything. I think I watched it and it was just another movie added to my you know, ever-growing list of movies that I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but after, you know, doing Cobra Kai, Crowded Kid with you, you're like, you, you need to go back and watch this. And it could be, you know, now that I'm older, I get the jokes more. Maybe I get the references a little bit more. Um, seeing, uh, you know, Billy Zapka and Deora Baird, you know, uh, the, uh, Robbie's parents from Cobra Kai in this movie as well. Maybe it was a combination of those things, but I, I was just, it was almost like watching it brand new, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a great movie because it's something that anybody can sit down and just enjoy. You can enjoy it on one of those uh, turn-your-mind-off levels, or you can pick it apart with all the references that they have in the background, you know? Yeah, maybe that's what it is. You know, I I had a lot more fun going in and kind of having a better idea of what it was going to be. You know, Josh kind of touched on it as well, you know, about the title of the movie. You know, it might have turned some people off initially. And maybe that's what I it was, was for me. Honestly, I was one of those people. Yeah. 
you know, uh, and I ended up watching it over at a friend's place and just fell in love with it. Yeah, it's, you know, we didn't even, because, you know, we were uh, limited to time. So, um, you know, shout out to you, Mr. Uh, Healed, for um, even fitting us in with everything going on leading up to the release of season two. But uh, there were more things we could have talked about, you know, and uh, quite frankly, we oh, just... Oh, I mean, yeah. Tom, we didn't even touch on the soundtrack. Oh, jeez. You know, we we talked a little bit about Motley Crue and Motley Lou, but the soundtrack is amazing. I mean, when Craig Robinson has that performance, you know, there's he does the Black Eyed Peas song, um, but uh, there's just a lot of great songs. I mean, that scene with Lou in the beginning where he's, you know... <laughs> Where he's in the garage, you know, where they say it's oh, attempted yeah. suicide, you know, so Home Sweet Home. Yeah. Just amazing songs all around in that movie. No, no. Uh, I was really, really excited to get to talk to this guy and pick his brain over this movie. And uh, uh, the only thing I could say is here it is. Um, now, Josh, do you have any questions for us before we get into it? We know we got about uh, 45 minutes with you. Yeah, no, go uh, go for it. I'm uh, I'm game to. Uh, I hope I have uh, all the answers. It's uh, <laughs> hot tub is not as uh, immediately uh, top of mind with all the minutia as Cobra Kai, but I will. Uh, I'll do my best. Oh, totally understand. Um, you know, <laughs> since you are one of the uh, you know the creators of Cobra Kai, I figure we start with a little bit of that uh, before we kind of talk about Hot Tub Time Machine. Um, I was listening back to our uh, reviews of those particular episodes uh, today that you directed, actually, uh, episodes five and six, uh, Counterbalance and Quiver. Yeah. Now, the, obviously, well, first off, we're big fans of your show. Thank you. Thank it, you. It, nice. uh, it's that. a pleasure to be able to do it. <laughs> um, but of all the episodes, I got to say, I, I think five and six balance drama and comedy very very well those two have uh, some of the moments that are just so extremely sad and also some very very comical uh, uh moments and i was very surprised that some of my favorite moments were in those episodes kind of just in those two there how were you able to find the balance between the drama and the comedy in uh, in the episodes you directed that's a great question. You know, those are the very first episodes of anything uh, I've ever directed. Um, I joined the DGA uh, because I was fortunate enough to hire myself <laughs> as, a, <laughs> as a director, uh, you know, for those episodes. And um, I'm really, really glad it was it was those two episodes um, of anything that season that I, you know, can sink my teeth into for the for doing it for the first time, because there was a little bit of everything. I mean, episode five in particular um, was constructed in such a way as to be our mid-season finale, you know, as it was like, you know, when we were making the show, we didn't know uh, entirely whether or not YouTube was going to release the first season as a binge or as, you know, two chunks uh, or week to week. So we wanted to um, definitely make sure that five episodes in felt like a, a like the climactic moment of the series in a way that if it was coming out a little bit at a time that you could really look at the season as two distinct parts so because of that you know we really wrote the hell out of that episode in terms of i mean there's daniel at the graveside there's you know the fight in the cafeteria 
Um, there's just so much happening, but there's also, you know, just you can't help but have those lighter comedic moments as well that just feel um, that's just what we do in terms of when we write it on the page. And that's more in our wheelhouse from things that we've done before Cobra Kai. So it was, it was, you know, I inherited those scripts that I helped write as well in terms of, um, you know, being on set and getting the things that you see on screen. Um, but it was just really, it was really rewarding to be able to, you know, direct episodes that were so well-rounded in terms of having all of those elements to it. So you can put a little bit of a lot of different things out there and, uh, and get your feet wet with, uh, with not just one tone. How, how do you guys decide who gets to direct which, uh, which episodes? Uh, with the first season, um, John and Hayden were, we, we kind of took the show out with them attached to direct um, at least the first episode. Um, because, you know, by virtue of the fact they had directed before, um, it was an easy hurdle to get over to say, you know, and we know who's directing the first episode. Um, when we shot the season, we shot two episodes at a time, which is why um, there's, you know, the same director for one and two and the same director for three and four and et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I knew that, you know, I was going to uh, want to direct um, an episode or two that first season. And uh, I really loved the idea of those middle episodes. Um, it made sense for the John Hayden and myself of it all to leapfrog each other a little bit. So we weren't um, directing episodes up against one another because that would mean that, you know, one of us is prepping while the other one is directing and nobody's paying attention to anything else. So we needed to kind of put a little bit of air um, in between us, which is why that happened. But as to why five and six versus, you know, seven and eight or nine and 10, um, it just felt just felt natural that it was like the, the production was up and running by that point. Um, we knew we had the scripts ready to go. Um, it was easier to prep and I could just really focus on the directing and wasn't being pulled in um, a million places at once immediately, which as you get deeper into production, inevitably you are because you're, you're playing catch up for certain things. One of my favorite characters of, um, uh, of the first season was homeless woman, Lynn where Susan Gallagher plays her very sassy. Uh, can you talk about the day of shooting, the scene where Yasmin and Moon are, you know, getting high in the Mercedes and and Lynn, <laughs> you know, walks up to the car? Yeah, you know, we had we had scripted that to be near the drive-through of a Del Taco, uh, which is a um, taco chain, uh, at least here in California. But we couldn't find a Del Taco to, to shoot at uh, in Atlanta, which was doubling for the Valley. Um, and I think it became uh, problematic to have a real um, chain featured in that scene when we had, uh, you know, teenagers uh, smoking weed and everything else. So uh, we went to the the parking lot of this place that did let us shoot there. I, I believe we put up some fake signage, but uh, the way we shot it, it ultimately didn't matter where we were. But it was a freezing day that day was really the first day I can remember on set that we started to experience like the cold snap of what happens when fall starts turning to winter in Atlanta. And I mean, it must have been in the 30s, if not the 20s. Uh, it was the day where like, you know, mittens and gloves and hand warmers and hot chocolate all came out. So I remember everyone being really cold and, you know, feeling bad 
correctly that the girls were dressed for you know springtime and uh and just laughing uncontrollably at everything susan did you know when she would come over I, you know i i made that sign that says give me money i, I think i just you know <laughs> I, I took a piece of you know that um that thing that uh, the the spinning sign that johnny gave her and i just scribbled give me money on it <laughs> and uh and i just remember just her mannerisms and her kind of creepy facial uh performance almost as if she knows she's intentionally creeping out the uh, the girls everything susan did really cracked us up and uh right from the moment that she came into the very first casting session uh, and she came in in character and uh it was her role <laughs> from 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 the beginning and you know we would we would find ways of giving her things in that first season to say or do that we found hilarious on the page and she just took to another level uh, on the screen, but I remember, you know, it was it was a challenging day like any other. It was also the day that we shot uh, Young Johnny looking uh, at the original Cobra Kai dojo, uh, where he kind of sees the guys pull up on the motorbikes and he gets off his bicycle and and walks over. And we have that big dramatic crane shot that pulls away of uh, Young Johnny, and then we see the eyes to the eyes match cut to present day Johnny. So it was a it was a challenging day out in the cold, but um, but a really rewarding one because we had this goosebumpy intro to episode six filming with this very kind of silly scene in uh, episode five. It's interesting finding out that um, you mentioned episode five was kind kind of set set up to be like the mid season finale. Uh, can you talk about filming the the big fight scene in the school cafeteria? Man, that was so special. Um, I we you know that that school uh, was is a really it's really a community center, um, and we had a lot of challenges shooting there because we never had full control over the location. It was never fully locked down where we had all access. Um, so we had things that would happen um, one day. You know, in the scene where Miguel and Sam are talking in episode six. Um, in the uh, in the biology lab, there's actually a swim meet happening literally in the next uh, <laughs> over the next wall that made that scene very complicated. The day of the fight, though, we had to be out of that cafeteria by one o'clock, um, and you know we took as early a call as we could, but it really required every single person on set to be firing on all cylinders. And I had already been to the location with Hidokota and. Uh, and walked it and, you know, told him in my very rough view what I thought this scene looked like. I said it would be great if it kind of moved in a circle and started over here and, you know, ended up here and went around here. And it would be great if he got up on a table um, in this kind of triumphant, um, you know, he conquered, you know, the mountain kind of uh, finale to it. Um, and we, And I talked about let's see kind of a a crisscross of karate training paying off from that opening montage to weapons of opportunity such as the the tray and the chair and and things like that because this was the first time you know we're we're seeing a fight with all these these things that can enter the fight but we just knew the clock was running as soon as we got there uh, we had three cameras we, we brought in an extra camera on the day and all credit to hito all credit to the actors and the stunt team, all credit to Cameron Duncan, um, our cinematographer for season one. Um, everyone had a plan, myself included, you know, shot lists were amended on the fly. 
um, you're seeing something and you're saying, okay, that's going to work there. We don't have to do this other thing because you know that that one o'clock deadline is looming. And it, even if we could come back here and pick up a piece of it, you're not going to have that same perfect energy that you have when you're just doing it over and over again and things are really working out. So we just moved in a very, very clear, very distinct, very quick way. And when we got it, we got it. We didn't have to go back and get it again just because, you know, sometimes you have the luxury of saying, I want another one just in case. But if you see something and it's great, um, sometimes that really is you. Sometimes you really have to trust that you saw it and it was great <laughs> because uh, those little bits of time add up. And uh, we were able to I think we dropped a couple of little things that, you know, there might be some idealized version of this. If we had another hour that, you know, ratcheted it up another five percent. But um, but what we were able to put on the screen with the time we had and um, and the prep time the actors had was uh, was incredible. It was uh, it was really it was that was a that was a you go to lunch and you're high fiving and thanking everybody because everyone pulled together to make that happen. One of the things that I love about the show is the actors. I think the delivery that they all have is just stupendous. And I was kind of wondering how much of that is improvised. Uh, do you guys, is this the kind of set that encourages it, but uh, kind of curb tails it? Or are you the kind that just says no improvisation at all? Um, unlike everything we've done before, um, this skews much more toward the no improvisation at all. Um, mm. with occasional, um, moments where we say, what do you got? You know, if we, if we know we're working with a, an actor who's especially got a, you know, comedic set of skills and it's a comedic scene, you know, we might say, you know, Hey, like, you know, have you thought about this? Um, do you have something you want to say instead? And we might work with that actor to, to rewrite something ahead of time or to say, okay, let's do one for you. Um, and that, that happened a little bit more in season two when some of the actors got even more comfortable with their characters and there were moments of levity that really felt like, okay, this could be a moment out of one of our films. But for the most part, uh, the actors stuck very much to the, the page. Um, and as far as like their delivery, it's, it's interesting. They all have very distinct takes on their characters and a lot of the voice and the way that they'll deliver a line, um, you know, whether it's with anxiety or, you know, they're, they're so super assured of what they're saying, even though they're so wrong. Um, a lot of that was what the actors brought to, uh, to the material. And, uh, and we encourage them to really make these characters their own, but, uh, but also to please say what's on the page <laughs> because, you know, unlike, you know, unlike a movie where we're just trying to get everyone to laugh as many times and as loudly as possible, um, there's a there's a real um, there's a real effort made toward making every line count, and there's a reason behind the language that we use sometimes that we want to call back in a later episode or a later scene, and we want to make sure that we don't miss the opportunity to set it up. Hmm. Uh. How would you say the experience that you had with William Zabka while filming Hot Tub Time Machine affects your current working relationship with him? It really, uh, it began our current working relationship. Uh, you know, when uh, when Billy came in uh, to work on Hot Tub Time Machine, it was during reshoots. We actually did three days of reshoots on that movie. And a lot of 
the those scenes with uh, with Rob Corddry and Craig Robinson going to the bar and making the bets. Um, mm. That whole sequence of scenes uh, was part of that reshoot, and I had you know pitched the studio um, in between principal photography and and when we shot that that these scenes were something that were an earlier draft that I had written. Uh, the idea that Lou would go back and try to take advantage of the past, but unbeknownst to him, he's already kind of messed everything up and he's going to pay a price for it. Um, so when, you know, in the spirit of kind of continuing to bring in iconic 80s actors in that movie, um, a, a good friend of mine at the studio, um, Luke Ryan, and the director, Steve Pink, you know, suggested uh, Zabka. I was over the moon. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bit of I'm a little bit of a Karate Kid fan. Um, so it was, uh, you know, I was writing pages still for these scenes. And I just made it my business to be in Steve's office when uh, when Billy came in that day. And I didn't really talk to him much. The guy like said, hey, nice to meet you. Like as he came in. But you know, you got to play it cool. You know, you don't want to come out right away with, you know, let me tell you my karate kid experience. Um, <laughs> but, you know, so by the first day on set, you know, I'm giving Billy his space and, and letting him, you know, find the character. <laughs> and, you know, he's dealing with, with improvising. It's actually him and, you know, Diora Baird um, in that movie as well, which is, uh, which is remarkable that they're, they're attached to the hip again in, uh, in Cobra Kai. But um, by day two, you know, I'm a little bit more comfortable with, you know, maybe telling Billy I'm a big fan of, you know, Karate Kid and everything else he did. And he's getting a little more comfortable in, in the role and, and the things that he's doing. We're having more fun. And then by day three, I just remember we're just talking all day about Karate Kid. And, you know, he knew I was a fan by that that point from like the purest place that I wasn't saying, you know, please hear, you know, read my short story I wrote about uh, the Karate Kid and you're in it and can you, you know, make me an answering machine message. Um, I just wanted to talk about that character and so did he. And, you know, he had just recently um, directed the uh, the No More Kings Sweep the Leg Johnny video, um, which, you know, of course I had seen at that point. And, you know, we talked a lot about his take on that and that, you know, he really... You know, Johnny Lawrence of all these characters was one that, you know, he never really shook um, and felt like he got a bad rap. And, um, you know, and I started talking to him about the idea of, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to revisit that character? So some of those earliest conversations um, were had back then. John and Hayden even visited set that day. Um, and, you know, we all just talked about Johnny Lawrence and about Karate Kid. Um, but it never, it never felt real or possible at that point. You know, we were all looking at it as this movie idea. Um, and the, the, the idea of getting a studio to lean in to that story just didn't seem reasonable to any of us. Um, but Billy and I started, uh, you know, a dialogue and a friendship then, uh, we would get together now and again. Um, you know, we'd, we'd have dinner or drinks and, and talk about, is there a way to, kind of resurrect that character perhaps without using the ip of karate kid um and it but it was really like you know kind of racking your brain for a a puzzle that there was no answer to because it was you know the ip itself you know being able to to call that character johnny lawrence that was the power you know the the idea of of billy playing a fictional another fictional character that had another fictional rivalry would just feel like it's 
it's 60% there, but it's kind of like eating a veggie burger. You know, it's uh, <laughs> even, the, even the best veggie burger. <laughs> if you're a fan of meat, you know, it's like, yeah, it's a very good veggie burger, but I kind of wanted the, the real deal. <laughs> um, so yeah, it, it was, it was definitely the, the, the beginning of, uh, of getting to know Billy and, uh, and, you know, and really counting him as a friend. Now, without that relationship that you'd built, do you think this show would have possibly been made? Because I've heard stories that uh, both uh, Mr. Zapka and Machio have both been pitched, you know, time after time after time, and they always rejected it. We we knew that um, that they had said no um, for you know thirty something years, so we knew just on paper this is a battle that you know even even I, I remember ralph's manager at the time was telling us like i don't know if this meeting is worth your time <laughs> and we're like please um but i think of the two of them um billy you know had, had we not known billy i think it still would have gone as it went because especially in the earliest episodes the johnny character starting his path toward redemption is a story that is so dramatically different than what was in the movies and and so rewarding for um for an actor that you know was was looking for a way to dramatize the you know the continuation and the and the redemption of Johnny Lawrence um in the public's eye and Ralph it was it was really us trying to recognize you know why what was it about what he had heard over those 30 something years that wasn't palatable and wasn't perfect and wasn't an immediate. Yes. Um, we knew he was going to be a tough sell. It's, it's hard to say, Hey, you know, that thing you did that like everyone regards as awesome and it's great. Let's do that. And, and hope that it's awesome and great again. You know, it's just, there's so, there's so many ways for someone to get burned by using something that is good and and it falling into the wrong hands and then you go oh great like i should have just let sleeping dogs lie mm. um but we were very passionate and persistent and uh and earnest and still are in our approach to to their characters and to the, the material and you know we were willing to take no for an answer if that was the ultimate answer but we really wanted to make sure we had our day in court with both of them because we really felt that what we had started to put together by that point was a really special story that also happened to carry with it the Karate Kid legacy. I, I think this would be a good transition into a hot tip time machine. Um, now, Josh, you're accredited uh, you know, as one of the uh, three writers of the screen pro, uh, screenplay, but also you're the um, the one whose story it is, right? Yeah, I had uh, I sold the movie as a pitch. Um, and I wrote the original draft and possibly the original two drafts of the movie. Um, and then uh, uh, Sean Anders and John Morris came onto the project briefly, um, and they were writer-directors, um, and they were going to come on to direct it. And, um, and they inherited the script, as, uh, as writer-directors do, and they did their own pass on it. Um, and as often happens uh, in this business, you know, sometimes directors leave a project and um, shortly thereafter, they ended up leaving the project um, and the studio hired Steve Pink to direct the movie. Um, so now 
Josh Heald is is very far behind, you know, in the in the chain of custody. I'm the little guy, you know, in the distance saying, hello, uh, remember me? <laughs> um, so, you know, Steve, also a writer-director, um, and he came on, and the movie was really fast-tracked once Steve was hired. Um, and I was kind of okay. It was hard. It was my baby, but it was a baby that I had passionately lived with for a brief amount of time. So it was tra- traumatic to see, you know, that project that was so... Um, special and unique and came from my brain um to kind of be moving forward without me but it was also rewarding that it was getting made um so a couple of months go by um the movie goes through a couple of more drafts um you know writers are hired to do a piece of this a piece of that um you know an entire draft at times and the movie goes into production and uh i got a call about a week or a week and a half into production and uh, the studio asked me if I would fly up to British Columbia and uh, rejoin the project. And I said, yes, when do you need me? And they said, could you get on a plane tonight? <laughs> so I, <laughs> I guess they were, you know, they were having a few issues with the script. And um, I hadn't seen a script of this movie in a, in a couple of months at this point. And I had kind of made my piece that this project would continue on without me. And I didn't know what I was going to be looking at when I got there. And I went in with a very open mind. And after I got off the plane and took a van um, up to set, this is in Fernie, British Columbia, like on the Continental Divide, a beautiful, snowy, you know, just winter wonderland. As soon as I drive onto set, I get out of this van and I see Crispin Glover practicing um, throwing a chainsaw up in the air, <laughs> and which was in my you know my very very first script, and it was in my pitch I think, and I thought to myself, oh that's still in the movie, oh we're gonna be fine, like we <laughs> no matter what problems this script is having, we can solve them because that is still here, and um, I moved into this hotel and and I started churning out pages for the next day's work um for uh, a week or two i was i would be working on the script but really focusing on like what was about to shoot so i was writing out of order but i had a good sense of the order of it in my head um because largely it was you know it was my script my structure my characters that was all still there um and some stuff had gone missing some stuff had been added there was some good and bad on on both sides of it um, but it was uh, it was not a disaster. It wasn't. Oh no! It was like oh okay, we can we can tweak this, and um, did did a heavy amount of rewriting while it was in production. And then when the movie um, was testing, and then we agreed there should be um, a little bit of a fix in the middle of the movie. I did all the rewriting um, to that as well, and uh, from that moment on became. For better or worse, the uh, <laughs> the soul, the soul protector and uh, and heir to the hot tub time machine writing uh, future. Uh, since you brought up Crispin Glover, I want to go straight there because I think that is probably my favorite thing about the film. Um, just the fact that his character is introduced without an arm, and then once they do travel <laughs> back in time. There's, I don't know, at least four or five instances where we see, is this the moment, you know, and and it's not. Um, But I think the funniest part is when they attack him. And later on, there's a callback to like him being attacked and John Cusack's like high off shrooms. And he's like, I'm going to rape you. (laughs) (laughs) It's, uh, oh, man, that Crispin, 
I, just making that movie, even today to think back on it is surreal. I mean, for a large amount of time, we were in a, in a ski resort up in Fernie that was shut down for the season. So it was a little bit like the shining where everyone's just kind of in like some, like you're like the only person on that floor of the hotel at the end of some long hallway. And, but at night everyone would get together in like the lodge and there was a grand piano and Craig Robinson would sing and make up lyrics. And one night Crispin just kind of opened up and told us all stories of his life about, you know, going on Letterman and almost kicking him in the head and back to the future <laughs> too. And the controversy there and, and everything we ever wanted to know. Um, and he's such an engaging and interesting person. And he's had such a, um, an intentionally interesting career, but, Man, writing writing that character on the page was like my favorite joke in that in that whole thing was this ongoing thing of like you know you're gonna see it happen and <laughs> and how's it gonna happen and the idea that that Lou would be so morbidly fascinated by it <laughs> that he would be upset anytime it didn't fully take and it became like I mean there were documents I was writing at times of like. You know, if we needed like one more gag, like actually the, the elevator gag was something I added while I was on set writing. Uh, there was one where I was where I was adding that, you know, he was adding wood to a fire, like this blazing fire. And you think that maybe his arm is going to be burned off. And I think that proved to be too difficult to shoot. So we came up with this elevator thing, which ended up being like just a, a production design like nightmare, because all of a sudden now they have to like build this semi-functional oldie timey mechanical elevator um but it just i just crispin leaned so hard into that character and came to set with a backstory for phil and he who he thought phil was and that um you know that he's been a little bit introverted before but this is the summer of 86 that he's really going to come out of his shell and and i love that i love how he he took something that was you know a character that and it's very earliest iteration was a joke I was telling in the pitch that we were going to see this character with one arm that we were going to see him with two arms. And we know we're building back toward one arm and, and he fleshed it out with, in a way that only he could do. I mean, I can't imagine anybody else taking on that character and, uh, and being able to, to nuance it as much as he did. It was, it was really something. Uh, Phil played by Crispin Glover is, is it me? Or is he the Western Union guy in this movie? <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. I mean, at the end, you know, he certainly has the message to deliver um, and says, you know, oh, hey, you know, yeah, your friend left this message for you. Um, you know, we talked about even when we made Hot the Time Machine 2, which, you know, we didn't have as many as many resources on. And uh, and, you know, we were a little bit handcuffed at times with uh, with where that movie would be set versus where it's shot. And of course, the you know, the the hardships of. You know, keeping track of multiple timelines and shooting in the future, and and how do you make things suspenseful if if you know you don't know you're building up towards something? So we really racked our brains with you know how to bring back the Phil character in the future, and and create something um, approximating the the enjoyment of what happens with his character in the first movie. But at the end of the day, it just felt you know like let's just you know kind of like Ralph with Karate Kid, like let's. Let's let that really worked. Let's let that live and not try to beat ourselves with that. Um, this go around, 
Um, but yeah, he really is kind of the, the guy who is, uh, you know, knows something's up and is, uh, and is there to deliver the message to bring you to the next movie. Tom, I got one more question related to this and and I'll let you jump in. My my apologies. Okay. So, so we're still talking about Crispin Glover here. Now I'm, I think kind of known within our group to kind of see things, perhaps even hear things, the drum, you know, on the door in episode six, which you also directed, Josh. Um, Now, there's a scene in Hop Tub Time Machine where they're sliding shot glasses down the bar. Is that anyway a kind of inspired by, you know, kind of the bloopers of Back to the Future where Crispin Glover was unable to catch the chocolate milk? Oh, really interesting. The, oh, uh, you didn't know about that. Okay. But no, no, I mean, I wasn't there that day that they shot the uh, the bar sequence with, uh, I think it's, uh, uh, is it Cordry sliding the bar down to, uh, yes, to, to uh, Colette Wolf? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, but, and I loved seeing it because I, I remember, I, I've always loved that gag of, of sliding a, a glass and someone catching it and doing something with it. Um, I do have a feeling that Steve did shoot it in such a way to do that because there were there were definitely on set opportunities to go out of the way to have an Easter egg here and there and and we wrote a lot of them into earlier drafts that were dropped and then you know they would show up in the moment and you go oh you know what we should do that thing now so I wouldn't be surprised if Steve shot it that way um, as an allusion to that but uh, I'm not entirely sure. All right uh, now. With uh, the overwhelming success that Netflix has had with uh, The Dirt, I got to know, when are we going to have a rockumentary about Motley Lou? And uh, <laughs> what would you want it to be about? Oh, man. Uh, Motley Lou is so funny because you know, that, was also, uh, that was also in the reshoots. Um, that was, we shot that whole concert, um, which was partially a shot for shot of the actual video mm-hmm. with, uh, with Rob up there on stage. And then partially, you know, things happen in that, uh, that aren't from there. Like, for instance, we have Zabka up there doing a karate kick um, <laughs> for a moment. And we created this version where, you know, Zapka's character, Rick Steelman, becomes uh, becomes Rob, uh, becomes Lou's like bodyguard and Guy Friday, essentially. Um, and had this, we had this, you know, whole coke fueled uh, idea of what their characters were, and it boiled down on screen to them, uh, you know, to Zapka breaking up a fight, and then he and Rob doing doing a karate kick together. Um, but I have a feeling the Motley Lou story would be. Would, would be, it would be hard to beat the dirt <laughs> because the dirt, they have a little bit of everything. They have drugs and sex and vandalism and rock and roll. And um, they don't have Lou, sir. They don't have Lou. It's hard <laughs> to outdo. It's hard to outdo Motley Crue. I don't know. I was able to meet uh, Tommy Lee the night of the Hot Tub Time Machine premiere. Um, oh, wow. And uh, Tommy came out and uh, and I went over to him and said, oh, my God, you're Tommy Lee. And he and he took his hands and then held my face for a moment. And I'm not sure if he could hear what I was even saying, but it was, it was a, it was a strange uh, moment where, uh, where healed and crew met briefly, but uh, even just to, there's just something cool about, you know, Motley crew that Motley Lou immediately has because it's got the cool name and it's mm. got that, that perfect, just drug and booze fueled 80s hard rock at its peak you know before everything's about to go sideways on it um i just i can't imagine the motley lou story would be anything 
you know, short of NC-17 or, <laughs> or TV very MA. I have to admit, I am really excited to be talking to one of the writers of this movie, Hot Tub Time Machine. Uh, the Cincinnati box has kind of become the thing of internet legend. So what is your idea of what the contents of the Cincinnati box would be? Well, I will say I have the Cincinnati box. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was, I have, I have a few things from, uh, from both hot tub movies. I have, uh, I have almost all the crap that they used, um, in the going back in time, hot tub sequence in the first movie all those masks and all the junk i actually have crispin's um uh phil the bellhop uniform um i have a lot of the ski stuff um my wife is horrified that i have all this stuff because it's taking up a lot of uh, a lot of room <laughs> it's not, not on display it's just it's in boxes well, like, taking up room. that seems to be just a universal truth with most husbands yeah, yeah. no we, we acquire stuff and then we're like good i have stuff and you're like, yeah. what are you gonna do with that i don't know um, but the Cincinnati box, um, I, you know, once I wrote it on the page that we were going to see a glimpse of it in, uh, in the sequel, I knew I was taking that. <laughs> I even said to the props department, I was like, I just want to let you know that that's going to be walking away and you're going to turn your back and it's going to be gone. And, uh, and they were cool with it. So I, I know what's actually in the box, uh, in reality, we had to put something in the box to, to give it some weight. Um, mm. and in case a character, you know, in case one of the actors picked it up or did something with it, you don't want it to go whoop, flying up in the air. I guess there's nothing in it. So I know what particular thing they put in there. Um, and that's between me and the props department. But in terms of, uh, in terms of the story and the legend of what might be in the Cincinnati box, I would say, uh, I would say stay tuned in case there's, oh. ever, in case there's ever any more hot tub time machine in the future you never know because we didn't know there would be more karate kid and that's one of the things that um is uh is fodder for potentially another hot tub time machine story to come oh i would love that (laughs) where where would you have it take place or have you not even put that much thought into it yet oh i mean there there are so many ideas like i i do not i do have i actually do have a uh an outline for hot tub time machine three um oh wow and, and it's in its earliest iterations uh there was the the trilogy game plan for this movie but i think we we started to realize as these movies movies happened that people really like watching a hot tub time machine movie at home and uh and don't necessarily want to go to the theater uh to watch it because they uh they tend to do very well uh once they leave the theater and that's something that the uh you know the studio is certainly aware of um so i don't know if this you know hot the time machine will ever come back and what form it would take whether it, you know could potentially ever be a, a streaming movie or a uh, or a television series or something uh, of that ilk but uh, depending on the medium um, would probably dictate uh, the type of story that was told, whether it was a straight continuation or reimagining or um, or an alternate story within the same um, universe and mythology. Um, so it could be anything. But there's uh, the benefit of time is that there's lots of it and uh, you can do almost anything. Well, you filled me with a lot of hope right there, sir. So thank you. 
So I, I know we're also running um, uh, low on time with you as well, so I'll kind of shorten my, my last question because I do have a really quick game that we wanted to play. Really, it's just 10 questions. We were going to kind of give you a lightning round, and it's really just learning about you in the 80s. Um, so that that's that's not going to take too long. Uh, All right. So my last, my last question to you is the title. Why Hot Tub Time Machine and the the science behind it? How did you come up with those? <laughs> the, the, sci- the science is there's, <laughs> there's no such thing as time travel. The, uh, <laughs> this, is, this is a case where um, I would never recommend uh, to a writer to do this, but the title came first. And it came about where I was developing a project with a producer uh, friend of mine, Matt Moore, and we were uh, we were out pitching something that uh, a different project that wasn't selling, and it was the end of an exhausting day of pitching, and we were just talking about '80s movies and kind of different types of genres that had sort of fallen by the wayside. And he said, "You know, someone should really remake uh, the movie Hot Dog," and Hot Dog was just kind of like '80s skis oh exploitation movie. And I haven't thought about that in 20 years or more. Right. I mean, it's like, I feel like the, the cover of the VHS has like a woman like unzipping a, a ski suit or something. Um, but except I didn't hear him say hot dog. I heard him say hot tub. And I said, <laughs> there's a movie called hot tub. I was like, that sounds awesome. Like, what's it about? And, <laughs> and he said, no, no, hot dog. And then, oh, OK, we started talking about ski movies. And, you know, I started thinking about it. And I said to him, you know, I'd love to do. I'd love to do a movie set in like that 80s ski world, but with characters from, you know, from now that have just a different approach and don't live in this world. And they're a little bit fish out of water and they can almost comment on how ridiculous it is. And, you know, it's like, well, how do they get there? Oh, you must have a time machine. You know, what kind of time machine? And then we both kind of said it, you know, together, almost like Craig Robinson says the camera, you know, a hot tub time machine. And we started cracking up and it was, you know, late afternoon where anything's funny. And a couple of weeks later, you know, we were talking again and, you know, one of us said hot tub time machine and the other one laughed and we realized it was still funny and uh, decided to, to kind of dig down on that title and the idea of, you know, the very bare bones idea of characters from now going to then and reverse engineered what a movie called hot tub time machine might look like. Um, but I still wasn't going to spec it because I didn't have faith anyone's going to buy a movie called Hot the Time Machine. What are they crazy? So I uh, I developed enough of it to pitch, and I took it out to the town to pitch, and uh, a couple studios wanted it, and uh, MGM was was the most passionate. They you know they really saw an opportunity to actually go make this movie and totally got what it should be, and they pitched Cusack, and I thought that was you know genius, and uh, off off we were. And the movie, and the, and the fact is, like the, the fact that the movie title never got changed is remarkable because, you know, as, as what happens with these movies, they get tested and they they test every little piece of it. How's the title? How's the hair of this character? Oh, do you like that the eyes are blue, or, do, or would you prefer that the character's eyes are green? And you know, they're they're always trying to tweak everything to to make sure it's you know it's hitting all the the right buttons for the intended audience. And there was a moment where the title "Hot Tub Time Machine" was viewed as a liability. And, um, and, you know, there were, there was a, you know, there were pitches made from, you know, people in the marketing department that like, let's call it the do over. And, you know, I really, 
not that I had a voice that mattered at that point in the grand scheme of things. You know, the screenwriter is not the uh, the biggest voice in the room when the movie's about to get released and millions of dollars are being spent. Um, but, you know, I remember saying, like, look, like, you can release a movie called The Do-Over, but in five years, no one will remember that movie. But if you kind of own a movie called Hot Tub Time Machine um, and it's and it's good, <laughs> then, then you win. And I, there was a guy in a focus group at one of the test screenings who I remember saying, you know, when I when I got free tickets to come see a movie called Hot Tub Time Machine, you know, I, I don't know. I thought it was going to be kind of bad. I mean, it was called Hot Tub Time Machine. But but then I saw it and uh, it's not that bad. <laughs> and I remember thinking, like, that's what we want. We want like to really lower the audience's expectations and then come out and say, oh, I wasn't that bad. Um, but yeah, thanks. All thanks to, you know, to Mary Parent, um, who was running MGM at the time for really making the final decision and the call to say, like, let's let's own the movie called Hot Tub Time Machine. And you know what? Like, there's way more people that know that expression that have even seen the movie. It, it, it did something magical and it entered the lexicon. And it's hard now to see people talk about hot tubs or time machines without just kind of making it one phrase. And it's uh, that's that's the weirdest thing of all of all the weird things to happen on Hot Tub Time Machine. The fact that you could say Hot Tub Time Machine and most people in the world wouldn't look at you crookedly is uh, is just ridiculous. Well, uh, we want to wrap up with this 10 questions. Tom and I will alternate. Uh, Tom, why don't you go first? And basically, it's kind of the first answer that you could think of uh, once we kind of you know, ask these questions. Okay. All right. So, all right. Uh, And these are all 80s stuff. Okay. Um, I lived through the 80s briefly. <laughs> all right. So when you think of the 1980s, which animated TV show do you think of? The real Ghostbusters. All right. What was your favorite solid. style? <laughs> odd? You said odd? No, no, no I said solid. <laughs> oh, solid. I thought you said odd. I was like, what? <laughs> it's, like, it's the real Ghostbusters. All <laughs> right, judging um, judging my, my lightning round answers already. <laughs> geez, Tom. No. Um, when you think of style from the 1980s, what's your favorite style? Favorite style of the 80s? Probably uh, spiky hair, like punk. Okay. Favorite rock band? Favorite rock band of the 80s? Um, I'm going to say Bon Jovi. Ooh, good one. Favorite girl band? Favorite girl band of the 80s? Heart. Ooh. Good answer. <laughs> Favorite franchise? Police Academy. Nice. Nice. Favorite not catchphrase? Ca- not counting Karate Kid, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Of course, of course. I think that's what we were going for, too, Like uh, other than Karate Kid. Yes, I figured. <laughs> um, Hot Tub Time Machine had some of these. What were your favorite catchphrases? Uh, I, I think I said rad a lot. I said that's rad. Um, okay. I think that's probably the one. What would you say is the most 80s movie? Ooh. Um, man, I almost want to say Weekend at Bernie's, but I feel like that was 1990. But there's something so extremely 80s about it. Um, the most 80s movie. Short Circuit. Ooh. Very Ooh. Nice. Uh what movie not in the 80s portray the 80s the best? I don't even know if Short Circuit was in the 80s. What movie not in the 80s portray the 80s the best? Uh, the Wolf mm-hmm. of Wall Street. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Favorite fictional character from the 80s? Favorite fictional character from the 80s. 
Huh. Daniel LaRusso. Easy answer. Okay. Okay. Uh, and last but not least, underrated 80s movie. Uh, big Shots. It's a movie with two kids who steal a Mercedes and there's a dead mobster in the trunk. And oh. they go on the run and it's it's literally like two 12-year-olds driving a Mercedes. <laughs> and I've never, I don't know how that I've movie never gets made heard of this movie, but I don't feel like my life will be complete until I watch it. The yeah, the same. guy, one of the actors is Darius uh, McCrary, the guy who played oh. Eddie Winslow. Yeah, Eddie Winslow. Um, as a kid, and and the other kid is like it's like a kid from suburbia, who's I feel like his father passes away, and then he runs away to the big city because he's you know sad and angry, and bad things start to happen because he's like a fish out of water, and he meets this other kid, and for some reason all these kids are just wandering around by themselves. And they end up stealing a car to go joyriding, but there's a dead mobster in it. And then it becomes a whole different movie. And uh, I don't know, for me as a kid in the 80s, I watched that a lot. And then I grew up and found that no one else except for John Hurwitz had seen that movie. Um, So we talk about it a lot, but I don't think, uh, I think there's probably like five other people who have seen it. Well, there's going to be six pretty soon. Oh, yeah, yeah, seven. (laughs) And that concludes our conversation with Mr. Heald. So thanks to him again for giving us the time to uh, talk about Cobra Kai and Hot Tub Time Machine. Um, this one was uh, really cool because we got to kind of hear like the early manifestation of the idea. Well, maybe not the idea of Cobra Kai, but like the pitch to Mr. Zapka. Yeah, yeah. Uh and I just thought that uh, it, the guy was really cool, really open. I mean, there were some things in there that I'd imagine he could have held a little bit closer to his chest. So I just, I just think the dude's really awesome. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you guys listen to this and have not seen Hot Tub Time Machine, do yourself a favor and check it out. If you have Amazon Prime, it's streaming. Matter of fact, it might even be on... I, depending with your network provider, I feel like mine is on demand. If not, you know, definitely it, it's worth a rental cost uh, if you go to iTunes. I recommend buying it because it's, again, one of my favorite movies. I mean, if you're going to pay to rent it anyway, might as well just pay the extra few bucks to own it. Yeah, because it's one of those movies that does get better when you watch it more. Yeah, absolutely. And, it, it, you know, we talked a little bit about the soundtrack, but just the poor, uh, performances from um you know uh Rob Cordry and Craig Robinson w- w- that was one of the the first time I'd seen him on screen and obviously Crispin Glover we we couldn't talk enough about him yeah yeah uh and i i, I got to again ask I, I i didn't come off as sounding too fanboyish did i no i don't think so at all all right cuz i was trying to rein it in because as soon as he was talking about the idea of a third time machine movie <laughs> or a television show or anything like that my mind immediately started coming up with ideas and I wanted to pitch him, but it's like, no, can't do that. Yeah. I mean, also, like, how cool was it to kind of go back and watch this movie? And we saw Sebastian, Sebastian Stan in here, too, who would go on to yeah. play with a soldier, a soldier. So, um, yeah, this this was uh, the, the movie itself is definitely a must watch, uh, especially for fans of the 80s. I know, Tom, you're mm-hmm. not huge on it. But even you can appreciate, you know, the references and things like that. Oh, I, I can get the full-blown nostalgia for it. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, you know, it, it is a time travel movie. And there's, you know, references to 
Back to the Future. You know, at one point, somebody's called McFly, but I know McFly was mentioned. Uh, Butterfly Effect. I'm pretty sure there was a kid that wanted his $2. He did, yeah, absolutely. On the... um, you know, I mean, skiing is involved too, but yes, there is yeah. there is somebody who wants his two dollars. Uh, time Cop is referenced, Terminators referenced. So if you're a fan of time travel, I mean, th- that's definitely the movie. Yeah, I, I can't praise this movie highly enough. Yeah, yeah, it, it is really good. Um, so that's going to conclude this episode. Uh, you know, hopefully this gets excited, uh, gets people excited for season two, which I don't know how much more excited can you get just from all the, all the different releases that have been coming out. Um, but you know, if you want to join a group and have some uh, conversations about certain topics and stuff, I think, I feel like our group does a pretty good job about having like specific threads and discussion, uh, threads and posts, you know, geared specifically for certain topics yeah uh, so yeah. if you want to get in on that just go to facebook and search www period cobra kai period tv amb group and you spell out the words period all right so peter if people aren't uh finding you on social media how can they remedy that oh i'll get to that but we have a couple other uh means uh, you know in the social oh, media oh. yeah yeah so t- if twitter is your thing you can find us at cobra kai pod and Instagram, Cobra Kai Podcast. You know, we do have a phone number where you can leave, uh, you know, a voicemail and all that good stuff. Which, by the way, Tom, we have a couple emails. Oh. Emails. People still do that. It's a thing. It is a thing. So if you like, I can read those. Yeah. All right. So um, actually, we, we, got a, we got like three. All right. So the very first one comes from uh edward r okay now this let me read it and and i'll explain what it is okay he says zive rhino and peep but mother taskmaster <laughs> well, how how long did you practice having to recite that, sir? Well, I mean, I didn't memorize it. I, I have it open right here, <laughs> but uh, you know, I mean, it, it it is just one word in different variations of it. Um, so for those that don't know, I did make a guest appearance uh, on Cobra Guys. You know, they had me on play a little fun game, and on there at one point, Jeremy asks Peter, "Is your guys' show explicit?" I go, "It actually is," but Tom and I, we don't like cuss a whole lot but we we do swear on the show and so he's just like you know can you say the f word for us <laughs> and so i did and you know and then um you know it, it's it's i have no problem swearing so I, I let them have it you know like i i really gave it to them you know so if you guys really want to hear me swear you can check out that episode so one of their listeners uh, i guess he decided to write in so i can swear on the show <laughs> nice, nice. So I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, but he does come back with a regular uh, email. So this is from the same uh, gentleman that uh, you know, he emails us in the next day. So he starts off with Bonsai, Zero, and Tom. Uh, Zero is my <laughs> nickname uh, given by the Cobra guys, just so you know. Gotcha. Um, and and you have a nickname too. Oh, Tom. I might have to hunt <laughs> Tom. <laughs> Uh, it's funny because they actually said it on an episode. So, uh, again, you know, if you guys are listening to the Cobra guys, you, you ought to because they are different but same, right? Um, now, not to 
uh, completely derail this, but you know what my friends call me for a nickname? What? They don't call me Tom. Uh, they don't do the thing that guys do and refer to each other by their last names. It's like, you know, they don't call me Co. Okay. They call me Tom Co. Okay. I don't know why, but for some reason they think that it sticks together. It should be one word. I like it. I like it. You're kind of like Cher or Madonna. Tomco. Tomco. I like it. Yes. I like it. Um, and uh, it was kind of a joke on their show too, because like I saw them on Twitter, you know, talking to their followers and saying, if, you know, if if we wanted a dojo name, just email in or something. So I did, and I asked for one, and they came up, you know, with zero, and they have their story. So I'm not going to tell it because that's their story to share, you know, yes. with everybody else. So go listen to that episode. But um, they kind of joked, you know, since you know Tom is my co-host, they'd come up with one too, and they're just like. Tom, <laughs> so, it was it was pretty it was pretty funny. I had a legit laugh. I like that. All right, so Edward, he continues. Wow, what a great interview slash episode. I am still trying to digest everything. Kudos on scoring such a great interview, and massive thanks to the big three for doing it. After listening to them, I am even more hyped for the upcoming season. Listening to it more the second time has helped calm. My anxiety on what might be in store for some of the beloved characters, especially after that second trailer dropped. It looks like shit is about to get real. Game of Thrones final season, endgame, pfft. Cobra Kai is what I'm excited for. <laughs> Your show is a big help satiating the craving for new season to drop. Also wanted to offer a big thumbs up to the Lady Zero for being so supportive. I am well aware just how important it is to have an understanding partner and without her support, Cobra Kai Companion would not be as great as it is. So thank you, Lady Zero, Ed. Um, hey, first, first and foremost, thank you for that great email. Yeah, yeah. Now, I feel he might mean Lady Tom because, Tom, on that Big Three uh, interview, you, you shouted out your wife and, you know, for letting you record while you guys were out of town. So he might mean her. I, I was wondering, but I didn't want to, you know, the dick and say, hey, wait a second. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, hey, I'll, I'll, I'll throw it no, out there because it, I, I don't think exact, I mentioned anything. It, well, no, if anything, I, I would say we should give your wife a shout out as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Having the baby and still, you know, allowing me to, to do what I love, you know, um, I, I'm sure posting my interview with the big three, she might have seen that and was like, oh, wow, he, he got to interview the creators. I mean, she yeah. was, you know, she was pretty happy for me when I told her I uh, interviewed, you know, George McFly 2.0, you know, Jeffrey Wiseman uh, mm. for Postalgic. So uh, I, and she knows Cobra Kai is a thing that I've been doing. And so uh, maybe she's been a little bit more lenient when it comes to recordings and stuff. No, that's very awesome. And uh, just on behalf of uh, myself and all the listeners, you know, thank you, ma'am. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and we got one last email. This one comes from Jonathan H. He says, hi, I love your podcast. I'm a huge fan of the Karate Kid and Cobra Kai series. I'm actually in the process of collecting autographs from the whole cast. I have also, wow. been, I have also been involved as an extra on set for both seasons for a total of four times. Funny story. I live in Atlanta and was always running upon Cobra Kai while filming. One particular instance was when I went to visit a comic book store in a really run-down mall near to where my girlfriend lives. Notably, there was a huge movie trailer presence on the other side of the mall. As I walked in, I saw that they were filming within the same area that comic store was in. 
I stopped a few kids next to the entrance and asked if the mall was still open to the public. Then I recognized one of the kids. It was Tanner Buchanan, who plays Robbie. Being a super fan, I had to play it off like I had no clue who he was or what they were doing there. He said he wasn't sure, but the young lady next to him said that the mall was open to the public. I said thanks and made my way to the comic book store nonchalantly. As I got to the comic store, there was a PA standing outside. I looked inside and there was Hawk with the big red mohawk. Oh, awesome. It was so hard not to geek out. I asked the PA if the store was open. He asked if I was just a patron. I answered yes. He then told me that I can go in but only stay to the right side. I'm not sure what they were filming, but to avoid any further spoilers, I told them that I would just come back another day. As I was exiting the mall, I passed by Tanner once more and just nodded to him as in, thanks kid. Since then, I have ran into Cobra Kai sets around Atlanta. I thought I would share my enthusiasm about the show and my continued love of them filming practically in my backyard. Thanks, Jonathan. And uh, he showed a couple pictures, you know, of him like, you know, around town uh, next to certain things that we would recognize from the show, too. So thanks, Jonathan, for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. So uh, that's awesome that, you know, you know, people are continuing to find us, you know, as season two uh, nears. And so we're we're happy to have uh, people check out our show and the interviews. So hope you guys all enjoy to the new listeners. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and also thank you to our longtime listeners for all of your guys' continued support. Um, so back to Tom, what you were saying about other things that we do. <laughs> uh, I do host a retro movie review podcast. Um, we haven't gotten around to Hot Tub Time Machine, which we had planned to do for this show. But hell, what, what's better than to review the movie than to interview the, you know, the writer himself. Yeah. Um, so, so we did that here. And, but anyway, that's called Podstalgic. And you can also find me on Instagram and Twitter at Podstalgic. What about you, Tom? What else do you do? Uh, well, I am the occasional co host of a show I'm kind of proud of. It's called Jake and Tom Conquer the World. Uh, you can find it anywhere uh, you find your favorite podcasts. Uh, however, uh, parents who might be listening to this, be warned, we do uh, swear a lot on that show. Uh, if you want to reach out to me on Twitter, you can find me at the drunken dork on Facebook. Uh, the best place to find me would be at, uh, my Facebook page, uh, Jake and Tom conquer the page as well as another page that I might be involved in. Yep. And speaking of that show, uh, again, we're kind of recording out of order and stuff. If you guys missed it, I'm pretty sure the previous episode, uh, was actually a throwback, um, to, uh, an episode I made, uh, I guess appearance on of Jake and Tom uh, before and after watching Cobra Kai season one. Um, and going back to listening to that, Tom, I, I didn't realize how early we recorded the, the after part. Um, at that point, I mentioned that we just started our group page on Facebook and I said we had half a dozen people yeah. in there. Uh, yeah. We're well over 500 now. That's yeah, well, amazing. just think about how uh, long ago we did the before part. Oh yeah, that was um that was definitely over a year ago. Yeah, uh, way before it was like a month before season two, uh, premiere or season one premiered. So um it it was really interesting to hear us talk before where you know we weren't so sure about like character names and we were unsure about the show itself. Yeah, I, I'm gonna say it, we didn't sound very bright, you know, going into watching that show, <laughs> and what a stark contrast in the after yeah, no segment. 
after I, I think five interviews at that point, we were saying character's name with confidence and we sounded like, you know, we knew what we were talking about at that point. Well, uh, starting to. Yeah, yeah. So it, I, I thought it was a fun listen. So I hope the listeners uh, go back and check that out if they uh, skipped over that episode. Uh, I mean, we do recap season one a bit uh, in that after portion. And I, I got to throw you under the bus a little bit, Tom. Uh-oh. In the before part, you said Martin Freeman. Oh, oh! You must have oh, oh. you must have been watching Black Panther or something like that. I, I don't know. Was it Mark Freeman in that one? I no. Isn't he? Uh, a, uh, like oh an English, yeah, yeah, right? yeah. He, that's he was right. like a CIA agent or something, maybe. Yes, yes, he was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that might have been on your mind because I, I believe that came out. Kind of that around could that very time. Very well, been yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard that. I was like Martin Freeman. That sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it. Nothing bad. It was just, you know, slip of the tongue and it happens. It happens. I yeah. often say Miyagi when I mean Miguel. Um, you know, we say show when we mean episode. It it happens, you know, but yeah. I just thought it was funny. That um, is that is funny. Yeah. So okay, well that's gonna do it. You guys, we're all excited for season two. Um and just to kind of throw it out there, we don't have days where we plan on releasing episodes. We get to it when we get to it. Unfortunately, we have day jobs and families that do come first. Um, but we I I think it's reasonable to to say that, you know, I, I feel like we can put out at least one episode a week. Oh, yeah. You at know, this point, this is a passion project. It, it, it is. I feel one episode a week is is fair. Um, now, I know episode reviews, people are like, oh, you know, why can't, why can't you guys do two in one week? Because they're only 30 minutes. Well, also with our That's show. It's not our style. It, it's not our style. We don't want to rush things. But also, we also try to reach out and get interviews from cast members, which I feel, um, you know, a, a lot of people enjoy hearing, you know, the behind the scenes and stuff like that. And so ultimately, it also comes down to their availability. You know, and we don't want to just put out episodes to put them out. You know, they are free and there are other people you guys can listen to. Um, so please be mindful if you guys, you know, decide to rate us, um, something low just because, you know, we don't put out enough episodes in one week. Uh, we, we, we try our best and we, we feel we, we put out pretty, you know, decent content, um, at the price of free. So can I offer a flip side to this? Sure. That's possibly the most awesome criticism I've ever received where people want more of something that I'm doing. Oh, sure. So I'm not going to take it as, I don't know how else to take it except as a compliment, the fact that you guys want more of it. So seriously, I, I'm stymied. That. Wow. Oh, thank yeah. You. No, I, I'm just, yeah. I, I was just trying to make it clear because I've seen like other shows that were given like four stars just because they only put out one episode a week. I'm yeah, like, wow. I know, but yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, I don't, hey, you know, it's, it's, it, that's your finger, you know, and you're putting it on the star, but, uh, I'm just trying to explain it, you know, yeah. what's going on behind the scenes for us. So, uh, anything else, Tom, uh, you, you want to say before we uh, end this episode? No, other than, uh, I can't wait for season two and we'll see you guys, uh, I'm assuming somewhere on the other side. Absolutely. We'll see you guys then. Thanks again for listening. See ya.
Thank you for listening to the Court and Parts Podcast Network. To listen to more Court and Parts shows, visit courtemparts.com.